Schneider. Welcome back to the Chaubert Show. I'm really, really excited about this episode, which I'm fortunate enough to do, actually, given where we're at in the world, uh, in person, and uh, whom I've known for a really long time and been able to live uh, seven years together as roommates, Avlock Coley. Avlock Coley, welcome to the Chaubert Show. Hey, hey. Yeah, excited to be here. Yeah. Um, Avlock is the CEO of AngelList, and uh, why don't you explain a little bit about yourself and what you're doing? Yeah, for sure. So AngelList... I'm sure most people in the startup community know about it. We are the place for startups to build their company, for fund managers to build their fund, and for investors to invest in both. Our purpose is to accelerate innovation, and that drives what we do day in and day out. How long has been AngelList been around for, and uh, who are the founders? Yeah, so AngelList has been around since uh, 2010, and That's the right. founders are Naval and Nivi. And it went through, you can think of it as different evolutions over the years. And the latest manifestation of it, you can think of it as restarting in 2019. And what happened in 2019 is I joined the company and we took the core venture platform, which had been built up over the years, and we spun it out as its own company. And once we did that, we really focused on building a financial platform that served fund managers, startups, and investors. And that's really grown over the last few years. And so when that happened, we effectively took the AngelList brand and yep. attached it to that. And now you can think of that as the new AngelList. And you can go to AngelList.com and see everything that we do there. Awesome. I remember the original like AngelList was pretty much like very narrow focus, like get angels on board, connect them, angel investors, connect them with individuals, almost like a social network for investors and startup founders. Now it's, as you mentioned, it's almost like a platform for investments and startup ideas to come and get investments as soon as you can with the right targeted investors. Is yeah. That kind of like the high so, level. So, what's a good example of a success story, let's say, that recently? Yeah. So... You can think of early AngelList as a lot of experiments that were being run by a lot of very smart people. And some of those experiments very early on were startups meeting investors directly on the platform. That's a social network aspect you're talking about. You can think of it as startups can go hire talent. You can think of it as investors can lead syndicates. That was another product. And then over the years, there was crypto platform and crowdfunding experimentation. So and the syndicates actually is interesting. That's kind of what led to where you are. That's exactly right. So yeah. the way you can think of it as is that there were a lot of these experiments run. Some experiments were shut down. Some experiments were actually spun out as separate companies and have actually blossomed from there. And so I mentioned the crypto platform that's actually CoinList. So CoinList is a gotcha. separate company that spun out very early on. And then there was Republic, which was started by an early, actually, I believe, Angelus first uh, legal counsel, corporate general counsel. Nice. That, and Republic now is, of course, an independent company that's focused on crowdfunding. And you can think of early Angelus as all of these experiments. Now, one of these experiments, was syndicates, which was basically a product that allowed an investor to amplify the amount of capital they could put behind a company. And that it's getting like multiple peers, friends, basically capital that they accumulate, but to yeah. a platform like yours much faster than exactly to do it all on your, their own. Exactly. So an example here is if I want to lead a syndicate and I want to invest in a company, I can either invest a $25,000 personal check, angel check, 
Or I can go on to AngelList, start a syndicate, bring my friends along, invest my 25000 and then my friends can invest another, call it 100000 Now, I'm investing $125,000 into the company. And founders love it. Investors love it. It actually is great. So that product was actually one of the core product innovations AngelList actually introduced into the world. Yeah, you make that complication very easy. From what I've noticed, actually, even looking at the deal flow and what you guys do, yeah, I know one, you know, name dropping here, but like a good mm-hmm. friend of mine who's an industry peer, Zach Colias, has been very vouching AngelList from the beginning, especially with the syndicates, and he's definitely a top one. But it's like it's very easy to basically get your friends and peers to come on board and invest in the companies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can really think of it as what did AngelList at that moment unlock with the syndicate product? What it unlocked was the atomization of VC. If Can you, you explain atomization yeah. of VC? Yeah. So typically when people used to start in venture, so VC is venture capital and it's short form for a really venture capital firm. You can think of the traditional venture capital firms as Sequoia and Greece and et cetera, right? And in the past, in order to become a venture investor, the path was you go work at one of these traditional venture capital firms. And the reason you needed to go work at these venture capital firms is because that was the way to build a track record. And that was a way to build relationships with these larger institutional LPs who would serve as anchors into your venture fund if you decide to spin off and do your own. And the reason that was a path is because back in those days, you needed to raise a lot of capital in order to start a fund because the administrative costs of doing it were just so high and the legal costs of doing it were just so high. Also like tech costs. I mean, you're talking about 1980s, Probably is kind of the cornerstone when Sequoia and mm-hmm. Kleiner Perkins really grew. Their funds were coming from the universities, from big corporate funds. And then, you know, that's when like the likes of Apple and others really exploded the beginning mm-hmm. stage of, I say, of the venture capital community, many of which these folks are more finance background yeah. um, than what it is now. So I think, yeah, I would say, yeah, you guys, obviously a little bit in uh, Andreessen Horowitz have really changed the game the last few years. So can you explain a little bit more? Sorry, I, I want to yeah. interrupt, say like, a little bit of backstory here because it's been like a, an industry that's been around for like 40 years plus. Yeah, it actually... Um, Stanford's really kind of a cornerstone of this, but... Yeah, I mean, in, in the long arc of history, it's actually a very young industry, right? Yeah, that's true. And it's a very young industry that punches way above its weight class. You can basically look at the public markets and you can take a look at the most valuable companies in the world and then ask, did they raise venture capital funding? Would they have been possible with that venture capital funding? The answer is probably not. Hmm. And that's actually quite amazing to think about. And so the venture capital industry itself is only 40 years old. And in the past couple of decades, the capital interest in venture capital has been increasing because of the likes of Apple and Google and all of that. But the underlying infrastructure never really changed. It was always done manually through people. Right. Yeah. So the last kind of, I mean, this is kind of when we met, let's say like over 10 years plus now, Mm -hmm. the San Francisco boom, you're talking about an immense amount of companies going public. You're Mm -hmm. talking about five to 10,000 plus people just within the vicinity of San Francisco becoming multimillionaires. That capital, access to capital instantaneously is coming back to the flow, but it's not as fast as you mentioned because traditionally these, they would have these legal issues with like, oh, are you a credit investor or not? And that's one angle of it, the legal side of it. The other side of it is like their mindset was just getting the funds again from traditional sources, sovereign wealth funds, yeah. uh, universities, what have you, retirement fund organizations. But now what you've created again is like individual level 
this is the future. This is kind of like, you know, people talking about like solopreneurship, mm-hmm. uh, but like I, the investors are now becoming solo venture, solo investors yeah. um, through AngelList and others. Yeah. And what most people don't realize, and I didn't realize this either until recently, is that most of the capital that comes from the institutional sources is basically repackaged from individuals. And then you have all of these layers of fees that are charged, which then mm. ultimately make its way into a fund. Right? So these are in middle people who are basically basically doing the deal flow already. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Because if you think about what does institutional investor mean, it basically means you're managing money for other people. Correct. Right? Okay. And who are these other people? These other people are individuals who are then investing in those managers. And what Angelus has done is really two things. One is atomize VC so that it's incredibly easy to create a venture fund, right? Mm. From the legal documents to the actual infrastructure needed to be compliant, to accredit invest, to, to confirm accreditation of investors who just taking in the money, the banking infrastructure, the deployment, the management, like there's a lot that goes into it. It's a very complex business, but we make it very simple for our customers that's one big thing that was unlocked with Angelus. And the other big thing is the other side of the market or the platform, which are the LPs. And these LPs are individual investors who, in an alternate form, actually invest behind other managers, then repackage the capital that eventually makes its way to venture. But they can just come on to Angelus and invest directly into the best fund managers. That's amazing. So like, I guess, what would be some success stories recently of companies and startups who've raised capital? Yeah. Through an angel list the last year, or even like, I guess, since you've been here, really, like you've been here now three plus years. Yeah. It's crazy um, to think. <laughs> I mean, the stats are a little crazy. We actually just announced this at Angelus Confidential. I mean, just high level quantitative stats. We're now supporting 14 billion in assets, wow. which grew from seven one year ago. And this is despite a lot of the macro headwinds. So we're still growing. There are 200 and I believe 80 unicorns that have been backed by a GP, a fund manager that's using AngelList. So again, that's a signal that we actually have really high quality fund managers on the platform. And there, if I remember correctly, there has been, I believe, almost $7 billion in capital that's made its wow. way to the startups that's as incredible. well, right, over the last few years. And because of our capital network, we've also driven, I believe, a couple of billion dollars in fresh capital. What this means is, if fund managers were not using AngelList, then they would have raised a couple billion less. Yes. So the AngelList Capital Network is a very differentiated offering that we have. That if it wasn't for that, these fund managers would just raise a lot less. I um, picture AngelList almost like a digital Sandhill Road. Like mm-hmm. you made it so seamless, but it's, it doesn't have to be just obviously people on <laughs> the venture capital community. You yeah. made it accessible for everybody. How did you get into like? this role? Like, I want to, maybe let's do some backward steps. Like mm-hmm. who is Avalok Holy? Where are you from? <laughs> right. Cause you're obviously by trade a little bit more of an entrepreneur too, than just yeah. an investor. So yeah, like it'd be cool to, for people to see who that is. Yeah. How far back do you want to go? Well, where are you, I guess like, where are you born <laughs> and then where are you raised? And then do you have any interesting stories as a kid and or a young adult that you kind of saw the path yeah. this is going forward? Right. Yeah. So I guess I'll kind of do the quick round of background and then maybe get into like trying to connect the dots. And we could talk about Waterloo too and how like that is connected uh, with you and how Silicon Valley is now connected with Waterloo. Yeah. So high level, I was born in the Middle East in Qatar, lived there for nine years. And then in the Gulf War, 
we actually fled and oh, wow. we left. It was actually, I do remember this moment. There was a missile actually that was launched where we lived and it missed. And that, that wow. sort of led to a, my parents freaking out and going, all right, we have to move out. It's the first so, time I'm hearing the story. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> and so we moved to, and there's more to that story. Oh, we ended up moving to India. So that's where my parents were from and lived in New Delhi, basically as like a pit stop. And the pit stop was Canada. And we were just mm. waiting on immigration for Canada. And I remember we finally got the immigration and we got the visa or green card, if I remember correctly, to move to Canada. And I have vivid memories of the first time we landed in Canada. Obviously, you have to go through the secondary screening and you're just waiting. And anyways, finally, we were in Canada and we actually lived in Toronto. So I was in Toronto for several years, basically high school, university, and uh, university was in Waterloo, did software engineering there. Interestingly enough, was the hardest time <laughs> just because it was very intense. Can you explain I, that real quick? I was joking around. Yeah, it was intense because I was in a experimental program that they actually continued, but it was basically software engineering, which was the combination of math and computer science. And or sorry, not math and computer science, computer science and engineering. And so we were taking classes from both fields and uh, sort of all jammed into one. And yep. Waterloo has a program called the co-op program, which is... They pioneered that. They pioneered basically. that, yeah. yeah. And all of North America, basically, people are in the university following it. Exactly. Enough. So can you explain the co-op program? Yeah. What it means? So the co-op program is you work or you you study every four months, and then you go to work every four months. And so what happens is... This is part of the curriculum. This is part of the curriculum. Yeah. This is just, you can't opt out of it. That is just the way it's done. And so the part that was challenging was you would go learn, like you'd essentially have a full course load, a very intense course load, and then you would have to apply for a job at the same time and go through all the interview process. And then you would then go to work for four months. You can actually work anywhere. I mean, one of my co-ops was actually with Morgan Stanley in London. And so it was great. It was actually really fun. And it was a really good way to get out of the four walls of the university and understand how the world works. And so we had a really strong iterative feedback loop of you learn concept at school, you go apply and practice the concept out of school. And so that was incredibly useful, incredibly powerful. And I think Waterloo is, yeah, like you said, is absolutely best known for the co-op program. Yeah. I mean, the co-op program now, I would say because of that in the last decade plus has on par with the talent of Stanford, um, MIT, and probably some other schools. And you know, like you have... Basically, people who founded companies like Instacart, Pebble, and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, okay, exactly. after, was Waterloo the first set towards becoming an entrepreneur? Did you try things there? Or did you, like, what led it to here? Was it, uh, I remember you mentioned your old roommate, Mo, you know, coming here. Obviously, I, I was a plug and play, and I helped get them funding with him and other but like, uh, yeah. and that was my plug into uh, Waterloo. You know, other was this like 19 year old phenom, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. sold his first company when he was at Waterloo. He started this company called Eat Lion with Mo. Mo um, Adham and uh, I actually flew up there and met <laughs> I met Eric from Pebble oh, yeah. before Pebble was called Pebble and I met a few others in the the whole accelerator program. But then yeah, it's because of that ability to go see what happened. This is like two thousand eight nine. I was able to meet you. So was it uh, in Canada or actually like like what had your aha moment? Did you fly down here and said I got to move here, or you just did it? You just came and moved. Like, yeah, there's some there's always those type of stories. Yeah, it was interesting. I've always been tinkering with different ideas and I sort of cringe at some of the ideas I've had in the like long past, even before I came to uh, San Francisco. But I've always been tinkering with different ideas. And after 
graduating university, I was working at a company that I'd worked at in prior co-ops and they were great. It was a company that was building software for insurance companies and Mm. uh, pretty close to home. So it was good to spend time with my parents after university. And, you know, I had a roommate and really close friend, Mo from Waterloo, who moved down to San Francisco, actually almost immediately after graduating. And he called me, this is 2008, called me and we were catching up. And I actually remember I was on the treadmill doing like a jog and he's like, (laughs) call me He's like convincing me that I have to come down. And I remember, you know, I was actually having a lot of fun. I was working, going out and, you know, spending time with family. It was great. Early and 20s, I was like, yeah. Yeah. And I was Our like, eh, I don't know. You know, <laughs> life's pretty good here. I'm not sure. And I didn't really, it was just so far away. I, it wasn't, I hadn't really grokked it. And this is, remember, this is actually right as Facebook was really taking off. And that's true. Um, and then Twitter did not exist. This is like early. So you don't, you don't really have a sense of what was going on other than reading what was in the paper, right? And he's like, no, 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 you have to come out here. Trust me. And I was like, all right, you know what? Let's just make a trip out of it. And I was like, great. So I flew out to San Francisco. I figured I'd go check out what they're up to. And I remember it took two days and I was hooked. That was it. It two was days. Done. Two days. I was here, <laughs> walked around. I remember I went to some conference and the energy was different. It was electric it was the frontier, right? You yeah, could yeah. just feel it. And that was it. I was sold. And I went back. I quit very quick. <laughs> like oh I just my. quit and made the plans to just move out here. And when I say plans, it wasn't really plans. It was like, great, I've got my car, told my parents, and I basically just drove the car down. That's it. And that was it. And obviously, I had to figure out a lot of details. Like you can't, as a Canadian, you can't just come to the US yeah. and need a visa. And, you know, I'd figure all of it out when I came here. And so that's what I did. I just drove my car down one way trip. I remember I drove from Toronto down to California. And I still remember I actually came in and the entry was wildfire. It was like right after a wildfire, I hit some of the, um, some of the trees. And I'm just like, as I came into California, I could just see burned trees. And I'm like, (laughs) am I I making the right call here? What's going on here? But anyways, just, I just kept with it. Yeah. And that was it. Never looked back and never have looked back. And it's been wonderful. So yeah. What, yeah, that's an incredible story. Like they've lived, um, like basically come and live the American dream, the Silicon Valley kind of dream. Yeah. What did you, did you start a company? Did you actually work in a few companies at that point? Because you need to get a visa, you mentioned. Yeah. yeah. So the way I characterize that time in my life is I would get a job because I wanted the freedom to be in the US and experiment and build something. And, you know, being an immigrant, the only way to do that was to actually have a visa and have a company sponsor you. And so the first few years was an exercise in what company what can I work at while delivering them some minimal value and at the same time having the freedom and flexibility to experiment and build things. And over the years, I've worked at different companies from faculty, which is like a very early startup, to I forgot about that. Events, which was acquired by uh, StubHub, if I remember correctly, to Doximity, actually, I was there pre-launch and Doximity is now a public company. But over the years, the purpose of working at these companies was so that I could be in the US, right? That's how much I wanted to be here. And I remember I did the math one time. I think I had at one point or like seven or eight uh, visas, temporary visas, and I had parallel visas. I was pretty much playing like a a visa game (laughs) just to make sure and remove risk that I don't get kicked out. And, you know, just like any founder, what I eventually found 
a, you know, a workaround, if you will, of how I could then effectively create a company and then sponsor myself. And so once I realized that's possible, that's when I could stop working for others and just work and build for myself. Now, along the way in working for these different companies, I was also experimenting with a lot of different mm-hmm. projects and ideas. Very early on when uh, Apple first launched the App Store, I actually built the world's largest manga reader and it actually grew very quickly in the App Store. And I built a bunch of apps that actually grew very quickly. I forgot about the manga reader. Yeah, yeah. and, they, and <laughs> they actually did pretty well. The manga yep. reader though, I got a cease and desist from Apple or not from Apple, but from the publisher of that. And I was very, I was young, so I didn't really understand how to approach those types of conversations. And Apple, I remember it just sent me a note saying, you need to address it with them. Otherwise, we're going to have to take your app off the app store. And uh, I distinctly remember it was like, it was doing so well. And I was so proud of it, but it just got shut down. And that was sort of my first lesson in sort of deplatforming uh, and yeah. making sure that you don't have that sort of a risk. And I remember I actually inspired someone else in, I believe, Vietnam, who copied this exact manga reader <laughs> and then sent me a note saying, thank you. He was very inspired by um, cool. by that. But they never shut him down because it was more of a U.S. thing than oh, an international geez. thing. So he did very well. And he just kept growing it. Um, but anyways, yeah, that was one fun example. But yeah, over the years, I experimented with a lot of different projects. Some worked, some didn't. You had just one company that, that was a little bit live. Which literally led to the one that you uh, basically successfully. Like, but it was like uh, Legal Reach, right? Which was like the the platform for lawyers. Can you explain a little bit that before? Yeah. And the learnings from that, obviously, you went into FastBite and you introduced yeah. FastBite to everybody. Yeah. So my early experimentation was just a lot of different projects. That's the way to think about it. And after I helped launch Doximity, which is now a public company, and I was an early engineer there and, and sort of was there for a few months to help them launch it. There was a, you know, when Doximity is basically a, a network for doctors and the early distribution hack that they had was they would allow doctors to connect with their med school classmates. And I remember the distribution would be an invitation would be faxed to the hospital. And so a doctor would receive an invitation that's faxed to them and they would look at him like, oh, wow. OK. And then from there, they would proceed to connect with them on Doximity. And you know, I looked at that. and. I was, you know, my interest was peaked and I, I've always understood how important distribution is, mm. but to a fault, because then I did, in my mind, the biggest sin of them all, which is I reasoned by analogy. And I said, well, doctors are one professional class, and this seems to work for doctors. Lawyers are another professional class. Hmm, no one's doing this for lawyers. And then proceeded to actually run an experiment with distribution for lawyers and there with my co-founder at the time and that was legal reach which was meant to be a network for lawyers and distribution actually worked it was wonderful we allowed lawyers to connect with other lawyers like meaning their past law school classmates the problem was we had no product market fit so we had a distribution hub that was growing very fast and we actually raised money on the back of it but we had no idea what product would have product market fit. And we experimented with a bunch of things. And it turned out that building for lawyers is actually incredibly hard because Mm -hmm. it's regulated and because lawyers just generally are risk averse, right? I still remember we we got a lot of angry calls for even sending an email about someone, you know, connecting with their law school classmate. And, you know, it was just a drain of energy just dealing with that. But anyways, that was legal reach. And, you know, I, I stuck with it because I'd always had in the back of my mind of you just, you keep going, right? You can just, 
you keep going and you keep going until something hits. And I think I kept with it for three years, if I remember correctly. Wow, yeah. And it just reached a point where that, that was my next lesson was that when something works, it'll typically work right away. And if you don't see and have conviction in the vision of the future of like what you're trying to build, then it's time to fold. It's time to actually shut it down. Because so the risk, take the risk and test fast and fail fast. Uh, yeah, it's not necessarily basic. fail fast. It's more, look, what vision are you trying to forge in the world, right? And if you don't have that vision that you have conviction in that you're trying to forge in the world and you're just kind of running experiments for the sake of the running experiments, that's not how great products are built. Great products are yes. an art, right? And it's an art where you're bringing different things together and then you sort of put it all together and you show it to the world. And the world either says, this is crap and we don't care, or the world says, wow, this is amazing. Can I get more of it? And I didn't realize that at the time. My approach to it was build this, build that, build this, build that, roll it out, let's see what happens. But there was no deep conviction in what vision of the world I was trying to push out there. And that I think is actually a big problem. So while we had distribution solved, we just didn't have the product. Got it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, I like the art aspect of like the vision and like obviously having conviction on what you want to do. The other side of it is like almost like a practical that a, a friend of mine whom you know, Steli, who's an entrepreneur, he basically told me once like his previous company he was running that he was psychologically like during the week, he'd see like one day really good and you're like pumped. And then the next is like just a grind, grind and you're, you're doing this. And he said it, he dragged on similar to you almost like three years with his previous company. And he looks back, he's like, I wish I quit maybe within the first year, year and a half and moved on. So, and then like, should we tell the fun backstory of Fast Bite to everybody about Fast Pizza and how, oh, yeah. <laughs> how yeah. San Francisco we used to as roommates order pizza and, and at nights, mm-hmm. you know, they're like, oh, we'll be there in like maybe 30, 45 minutes. And sometimes what well, the worst was that one night it came an hour and a half later. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah. you're like, I just want pizza in 15 minutes. Yeah. I yeah. Want it. So the second company that started, it was born out of hanger. <laughs> real <laughs> I hanger. I love the hanger, yeah. And, you know, just learning from the first one, I now just wanted to do something. I wanted to build something that I had the problem, right? Like I was facing the problem. The myself. industry also was good timing. Yeah. And so solving my own problem was definitely top of the list now for me. And at that time, delivery in San Francisco I believe it was like an hour, an hour and a half, right? It was actually, yeah. it would take a long time for any food to get delivered. And of course, you know, we were always getting food delivered. And the observation I had at that moment was, well, we're kind of getting the same thing again and again. Hmm. So there's a pattern here. And the hypothesis was that most people actually end up ordering similar things across lunch and across dinner. And so what if we pre-purchased and then actually had people close to the most populated areas then deliver very quickly. You could then actually have an order of magnitude decrease in delivery time, which typically great products have to innovate on some vector. And it has to be an order of magnitude improvement on some vector. And so the vector that I chose to focus on was speed. And so Fastbyte in short was less than 10 minute delivery for the most popular food items. And our average delivery time was uh, actually seven minutes. And so this was in a moment when delivery time in the city was, you know, an hour, hour and a half. So it was a very noticeable difference. And the industry at that time had the, you know, companies that were delivering food, not just like you had to get it from the restaurants, E24s. Yeah. And it was the one from New York. Postmates uh, was there. Correct. Yeah. Caviar was there. Then 
DoorDash wasn't in the cities yet. It was still in the suburbs. So yeah, it was sort of the early start of like some of the delivery apps. And so, you know, I remember it started off with pizza, actually. First, it was like yeah. pizza, you know, obviously pizza is what people love the most. And so it started off with fast pizza. And then from there, evolved into fast bite, which was, oh, we're going to deliver more than just pizza. And uh, I actually developed the first app myself, the consumer app and then the driver app. And remember, we experimented with all sorts of things early on, like an electric bike to carry the food and oh, how wow. to warm it and all of that. And Fastbuy was actually a very, no pun intended, a very fast company in terms of how quickly we moved. So we actually ended up doing a, a beta launch. Orders started growing like crazy. We opened up new parts in the city in San Francisco. And all, all of this I was actually just in San Francisco. You know, we opened up more times, opened up more zones. Things started growing. And... There was one area that just started growing a lot faster. And I was, it was like super odd. I was like, hey, what's going on in this zip code? Huh. And, you know, every day we'd get like some folks ordering from there. And it was like, oh, wow, Square. Square is over there. It's like, okay, I didn't really think anything <laughs> of it. And then, um, you know, bit by bit, more and more orders started coming in. And then at this around the time I was actually raising, I was raising the seed round. I'd raise a pre-seed from friends. And now I was raising a seed round. And I believe you actually made the introduction to Gokul. Uh, so Gokul was an executive then at Square. That's right. Yeah. And also an angel investor. And I was looking at more of as an investor strategy. Level. Yeah, exactly. I didn't actually think he'd be on the caviar team there. Uh, yeah, exactly. Caviar was acquired by Square. Yeah, um, it's funny. Kind of a little bit of a sidebar. Yeah. Uh, this is the serendipity that, you know, when people say why you should move to a a city that's more centered around startups. This is one example of serendipity. Mm-hmm. I can name many other examples of serendipity exactly like this that I've had, that others have had, where when you're actually in a tech center, in startup center, this type of serendipity happens all of the time. And so that's why you want to optimize for that. And the reason I'm bringing that up is I know that there's a question of where the next SF is going to be. And yeah, I'm actually seeing it's, it's still San Francisco. Well, let's. I could hold you on that question. Let's finish this story about oh, yeah. fast fight. So, but I will come back, back to because I think Angel List is very relatable to this yeah. and the, the de- decentralized world. So the yeah. fast fight, you talked, you connected Gokul. What happened? Oh yeah, so Gokul <laughs> in Gokul fashion. I remember it was actually Square offices on Market Street, and we're having lunch at the Square office. And I thought I was there to um, to pitch him about fast fight so he can be an investor. And uh, you know, he just sort of stopped me if I remember correctly, and he was like. Hey, we want a partner to acquire Fastbite. I was like, "What?" <laughs> and, um, and he's like, "Yeah, no, we just acquired Caviar, and we also want to acquire Fastbite." And so that started the journey of me considering an acquisition. And I remember it was I was very um, I was a very split views. Mm. I had all of this energy built up of like just build an ambition of building something. And in my mind, I was like, "Well, why would I sell?" And after a lot of back and forth. And getting to know the Square team and also just talking to some of our early investors, ultimately actually decided to join Square and to and to continue working on Fastbyte there. And Square has had a, you know, traditionally with Jack Dorsey, mm-hmm. with people like Gokul and others, like a very startup-like mentality, yeah. even as a public company. Can you explain, now that you've done startups, you're joining a big machine and they went, they, this is before they went public. So this was before them public. And yeah. then they went public. But yeah. can you, you know, like what are some benefits of what you actually did and joined? Was it the scale? Was the infrastructure? You know, stuff like it was marketing, marketing dollars. It was the people. It was no, the people. It was, okay. people. It was um, I remember, you know, I think everything about the way Gokul ran the process was pristine. Wow. It was candid, pristine, 
and worked hard. I mean, I remember I would get text messages from Gokul at like 9 p.m., 10 p.m. And I'm like, wow, I found my people. Like, this is yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I, I won't go to other sidebars of like the, the importance of working hard. You just need to work hard. And I was like, whoa, like you're engaged. You love this thing. And I remember we just go back and forth on like different ideas and what we could do. And I was craving that. I've always craved that, right? Like I always crave just jamming on ideas. That's how things get built. And so that was one. It was just the great, I found my people, like they're willing to work hard. Yep. And then second was a couple of conversations with Jack where he was, he just pitched a very clear view of other parts of Square that the clarity which, with which he pitched what the future will look like for Square, yep. which became Square Seller, Cash App, just sort of made me realize, okay, you've got a leader with vision and you've just got hardworking people. And there's just a lot to learn. And they actually gave me full freedom. In fact, I remember Amazing. one of my first meetings uh, there, Jack sort of said, Ablox, the directly responsible individual at DRI, it's, it's an acronym that even Angelus now uh, applies for Fastbyte. He'll make the decision if he wants to keep the Fastbyte name, all of that, right? So it was a very, like, it was a moment where I had the accountability and responsibility to run things how I saw fit. We have like yeah. uh, five minutes and I want to make sure we could do like a quick, uh, quick crash course, like questionnaire now. So yeah. the first is, uh, you mentioned, you know, San Francisco serendipity and tech. You still believe in that. I still believe that because I'm biased. Yeah. I'm from here. I do think there's many hubs in the likes of Austin, Seattle, Miami, what have you. They all have their own benefits and everything is not digitized, but that, you know, in the last couple of years, I've noticed it's very difficult to bring that interaction connection, even yeah. to a digital platform. Like, in, But then the argument is, you're running AngelList. There are other platforms like, I don't know, you could say the social platforms that connect people or even the chat apps now. So what is your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the asynchronous nature is good for efficiency. It's a lot harder for effectiveness. And effectiveness is really important when you're creating the ideas in the very beginning, the creative stage, the like the zero to one stage. And you really, like there's no substitute for just being in person yeah, and building a relationship with people. And so much so that I'm actually personally investing my own time and leaning into the San Francisco energy and hosting more events. I'm actually later today, I'm hosting a fireside chat with Amja, the CEO of Replit. And uh, we're going to do like a kind of networking thing and really leaning towards just bring more people in the office and getting to meet each other. And so really leaning into that energy. And it's because especially for founders and the early founding team, that is the best way to build connection. It's the best way to build a relationship. It's also the best way to get inspired. Otherwise, asynchronous, like it's hard to, it's really hard to feel that connection. So I'd love if we could work asynchronously for everything, but it's just, I don't see it. Yeah. Yeah, I know some companies and some industries, I mean, there are like, they're very openly. I know some crypto companies and Web3 companies, that's their their visions. Like, hey, we're decentralized, we're going to be decentralized. And it works to a certain extent, but yeah, I mean, there's also kind of arguments that people I've seen, they were still coming in the office yeah. the last year plus, and they're a lot, they've been a lot more effective at, with exactly. the safety measures and all that. And then I know, uh, again, we have maybe like one or two minutes. What's your take on, you know, what's going on now in the world and maybe in the future? Like a quick take, like what's your envisioning in both yeah. technology in the world and how it can enable and help people out? Uh, just on a high level, vision, like Adlock viewpoint. Yeah, I think we're actually on this exponential curve of pretty major technological innovation. And I think 
things are going to get very crazy, crazy good and crazy bad, because I think there's also just more variance in the world. Mm. But the future is actually very bright when it comes to technology. And I actually think there's no better time to be a founder, start a company now. And I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back and just look at the past 10 years and realize that, well, we had way more innovation, way more momentum than even the prior 10 years before that. So we're just in this like middle of like this major exponential curve that's just like up and to the right. And I think it's going to continue. I think the next big frontier that I'm seeing is I still think crypto has something to it. Obviously, it's going through its moment. I think a lot of the a lot of the um, innovations in large language models, which is what, what's called for AI now, that that's going to have quite a big impact on creativity. And could it have an impact on like how much it contributes to scientific knowledge? So that's another big area that I'm quite excited about. But yeah, I mean, TLDR is super, a TLDR is acronym for too long to read. It's just a way to summarize. <laughs> Very excited about the future. Awesome. Well, Avlock, thank you so much for being on the Shabir Show and to sharing your story to everybody. Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. And uh, thanks again for joining on the Shabir Show, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.